All right, let's go to God's Word for us this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 18 to 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. And I'll go ahead and read this for us. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, and let's dive into God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, just being able to be able to worship you uh, during this season. And as we draw near to you, as we give our ears to your word, would you uh, help us to hear the voice of our shepherd, the voice of our Lord, the voice of our God. And, and rather than trembling in fear, may we find our comfort there and find our uh, only hope. Um, and also realizing once again who we are uh, through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're nearing the end of our uh, series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've been looking at it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're scheduled to complete this um, by the end of the year. So well done. Uh, thanks for hanging, hanging in there through this very difficult book. Um, now our passage today opens with what you might call like a summary statement. Uh, it's a concise summary of what came before as the author moves on to his uh, sort of climactic point. And the summary is pretty interesting because it's basically this sentence in verse 18. Take a look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. For you have not come to what may be touched. And that's referring to all the, the old covenant system of worship that had all these tangible, touchable elements, like the temple, the physical temple, the the inner core within the temple, the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, all these things that can be touched, but the people could not touch. And that's an interesting statement, therefore, because he's saying you have, come, you have not come to what may be touched, when in fact all that was given to them was, were tangible things. And that's because as we've been learning throughout this series, the old covenant system of worship wasn't put in place to highlight, here's how you can access God. It was more so to highlight how they cannot access God through their own works, through what is tangible, not with their sins, not with the sins of their priests, 
There is a barrier to it all. And so we, we see in Hebrews 10, 11, for example, um, not with the animal offerings uh, because they can never take away sins. Only the true Lamb of God, uh, to whom all these animal sacrifices were pointing to, pointing to, only He can remove your sins and bring you near to God, and that is Christ. So that's why all these parallels throughout this book were made. Like time and time again, the author has been contrasting pairs of common yet distinct things. So I have a quick summary list here for you. I'm going to race through these, and I have the passages on PowerPoint. Um, but it's going to be something that I speed through. But again, it's just a way for you to look at the, the Golden Gate Bridge again from a different angle because it's a giant thing, and it just takes multiple looks to get a full scope of it. So here it is. Uh, Hebrews 8.13 the old and the new covenant, right? The old is ready to vanish away since the new is here. Contrast. Hebrews 10.1, the shadow versus the reality of the good things that have come. Another contrast. Hebrews 10.11-12, the animal sacrifices that can never take away sins and the true sacrifice of Christ that actually can take away your sins once and for all. And then the physical tent and the temple versus the, the better and more perfect tent and the truer curtain, that is Christ, Hebrews 9, 11, and 10, 20. And then, here's something that you'll see reiterated in our passage today, and that is that the temporary dwelling place of God's people on the one hand, and the eternal heavenly country, the eternal dwelling place of God's people on the other hand. And we saw it in Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16. You're, you're going to see it again in Hebrews 12, 22. So you have to catch this pattern here. And one of the difficulties about this book is simply one read through the book of Hebrews. You may not catch these uh, patterns, but the author gives you contrast after contrast uh, to, to emphasize this point. And here's, here's a helpful language in our passage today that helps us summarize it. It's really the contrast between what is shakable and what is not shakable. The shakable things that are removable and the unshakable things that are not removable. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And in our passage, it's very important that you also catch this contrast showing up in the unshakable city of God on the one hand and the shakable and the temporary reality down here on earth. And why that is so encouraging and hope-giving, not only for the, the Jewish Christians who are receiving this book, but for us today as well, the church. Uh, it's for us, a way for us to live in this very shaky reality an unshakable life. And here's the outline for today. Three things we'll look at about this unshakable reality. The unshakable home that we have, the unshakable solution for our sins, and the unshakable power to live in the here and now. These three. Okay? The unshakable home, unshakable solution, unshakable power. All right, so let's start with the first point. The unshakable home we have above. Let's start with verse 22. It says, but you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Okay, so uh, notice the repetition here of the intangible, invisible, the heavenly. Okay, it's basically telling you, look up, because that's where your home is, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in festal gathering, right? Very clear where this Mount Zion is supposed to be. It's not thousands of miles away, somewhere in the Middle East. It's not found here on earth, right? 
You will, you will not find some hollow ground here on earth where innumerable angels are having a f- festival. <laughs> I would like to be in that party. It's not found on earth, not yet. The author is continuing to pull his audience away from, from the earthly perspective where everything is visible, everything is tangible, to see what is above, what is not yet here. And that, again, would have been a radical thing to tell Jewish Christians because it means don't focus so much, again, on the physical temple, the physical uh, sacrifices with these uh, human high priests. Don't settle even for a physical homeland, a physical Canaan. Why? The kingdom of God is not of this world. Be like your forefathers who longed for a better country, which is the heavenly one. Now, given that this book was written to Christians who were, um, Jewish Christians who were going through all kinds of trials, all kinds of suffering, and even persecution from both Gentiles and the Jews, it, it's really important for us to notice here what the rallying cry, therefore, would have been for the church at that time and also for us today, and what, what the rallying cry is not. It can't be, right? The rallying cry for the church, therefore, can't be, hey, are you, if you're in a tough spot, well, you have the power to just go, go fix it. Just, just change things for the better. Right? That's the Christian solution to your problems. Or, um, hey, sister, if you're, if you're finding yourself to be in a helpless situation, help yourself because God helps those who help themselves. That can't be the, the rallying cry if this is true. Rather, it is this. What we're hearing in this passage is this. Brother and sister, you have come to the solution the unshakable country, the unshakable city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've already come into it by God's promise to you. And, and when it says it's a heavenly Jerusalem, that's intentional to take their eyes away from that, that city, that physical city of Jerusalem that they so cherish. Look to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one. The heavenly one where innumerable angels are gathered, the very city of the living God. Look to that city. And as it says in verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Made perfect. And if you know that we are not going to be made perfect until the day the kingdom of God descends upon us, and until we're fully enrolled into heaven, then you know this is not, this cannot be talking about the here and now. It's doing the opposite. It's pulling your attention away from the here and now to something unshakable. It cannot be more explicit uh, than that. This is your Christian hope. This is your Christian home. This is where we who who have been deemed righteous by Jesus Christ are made perfect, where Nothing more needs to be done. There's nothing more to seek after, nothing more to strive for, nothing more to wait for. That's the city of God. And you can look all you want to your left and to your right. Unless you look up to this city by faith, you will not. You will not find something unshakable, something that grounds you, something that secures you. This is still the answer to our longing for home where, where every wrong is made right, where we will no longer struggle, we will not suffer anymore, nor will there be any death, not even a single discomfort, not a single inconvenience, not a single displeasurable moment. 
That's when the city of God descends upon the earth on the last day, like it says in Revelation 21. And it reminds me of this little poem in The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where it says, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets his death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Longing for this not yet home, the future sight of Christ coming into sight. That's life lived in faith in the here and now. Faith in the unshakable home that is not yet. So we have to hear that encouragement for ourselves today because we also are suffering various trials, tribulations, right? But this tells us no matter what kind of loss or trial or even evil, evil you've suffered or suffering, if your heart's treasure is above, in, in your unshakable eternal home, then nothing here, nothing in the temporary here and now can shake you out of your security, can, can shake you out of your identity, shake you out of your, your peace, shake you out of your inheritance. Your true inheritance is found in something that cannot be shaken. It's something that's forever secure in the kingdom of God. And, and for some strange reason, as I was thinking about this, my mind immediately went to this movie um, called Coming to America. Do you guys know the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? It's a classic. I, I think I will recommend it. Um, it's where Eddie Murphy plays this uh, character named Akeem. He's a crown prince of this African country. And when it's time for him to find a, a, a wife, he decides to go somewhere where nobody knows about him, nobody knows his status, so that you know, the person who marries him will marry him for, for who he is and not for his, his riches and status and all that stuff. So he decides to go to New York, and he brings along his companion, uh, Semi. And they make a really interesting and comedic, hilarious duo. Uh, and, and the tension that creates that comedy is essentially this. Akeem, the crown prince, he wants to work at McDonald's. He wants to live in a junkie apartment. He wants to give all his money away. Why? Because he wants to hide his status and find a wife who would truly love him and then bring her back to uh, his kingdom. Whereas Sammy will not have any of that. Right? He, he's like, why would you work at McDonald's? Why would you give all your money away? Why would you live in this junkie apartment? And Sammy was always, even, even as he was living in New York City, he was ready to, to live a luxurious and, 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 and uh, pleasurable life. Right. Um, so, so they behave so differently, and their interests are always sort of at, at odds. And here's what I came down to. Akeem, you see, was always thinking in the back of his mind, he was always thinking, I'm the crown prince, and I'm going to return home. Okay. And therefore, I can give all this away. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how generous I am with my money. It doesn't matter how much displeasure I experience now. I'm going home, back to my kingdom. I'm the crown prince. Whereas Sammy lived in New York as if he's immigrated, as if that's his new home now. There's no other home to go back to. And so he's all about the here and now. He's all about, I need, I need, I need a jacuzzi in this apartment. I need, I need a nice TV. I, I need all the cash I can keep. He lives as though he's ready to settle. And I think that's essentially the contrast between Christians who live by faith 
and Christians who struggle to live by faith. Those who struggle to live by faith are those who are struggling to think of home, to remember home, and living here as though this is home. I want to settle here. I want to be as comfortable as I can right now. And those who live by faith are those who are saying, wait a minute, I'm the crown prince in the kingdom of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. This isn't home. So I can give everything away. Anything I lose in this life is not a permanent loss because I have a permanent home where my inheritance is secure. This is what the Bible tells us about our identity. You are an ambassador of Christ living in a foreign land. You're representing a different nation here in this earthly nation. You're here temporarily. You're on a mission. And that makes you sojourners and exiles here on the earth. And that, at some point, has got to show up in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we give our lives away, in the way that we don't hang on to earthly losses because we long for the true home. Our home isn't here. We are the crown prince of the kingdom of God, co-heirs with the Son of God. Let's not forget that. And therefore, our losses, our trials, even our death can be seen in a different light. It's not the end. It's our, it's our homecoming. It's not cause for despair. It's cause for more hope. Uh, J. Todd Billings, he's a Christian theologian who is battling cancer while just lecturing and writing books. And he put it like this, and I have the quote up here because I, I put it in the reflection in our bulletin, but I also have this in our, in our PowerPoint slide. He says, On hard days and easier days, amid joy and pain, I've come to embrace mortality reminders as strange but good gifts. They can ground me as a mortal before God. We live in hope that the frailty and decay of our bodies will not be the final measure of our lives. We live in hope that the central drama of the universe is not our own life story. Instead, living as small creatures, we can rejoice in the wonder and drama of God's love in Christ. And this is someone who is not unfamiliar with suffering. To me, therefore, uh, J. Todd Billings, this guy is a real-life Akeem. He is the real-life crown prince, a child of the living God, living among us temporarily until he goes home, until he inherits it all, until he escapes this suffering, this decaying body, this decaying world. And he's living in a different drama, therefore, different story than those who are only living for the here and now. He's living in the drama, as he puts it, of God's love. The, not, the, not the drama of my best life now. Not the drama of all of my dreams must come true in the here and now. Not the drama of here's my career success that would define who I am. It's the drama of this tiny little creature, a speck of dust in the universe, getting to go home to be with the living God. And... If you and I can catch on to this perspective in life and in death, we won't be shaken. We, can't, we cannot be shaken. So longing for and looking for this unshakable home, the heavenly Jerusalem, that's, that's the encouragement in this passage, first of all. And here's the second thing. There's also in, packed in here the unshakable 
moral solution to the problem of our sins, an unshakable solution to the problem of our sins. And this is another very important part of this drama of God, right, where heaven is not just comforting when it comes to escaping suffering, comforting also because it resolves, it solves the moral problem of our sins and, and gives us the only unshakable solution for that problem of sin. And talk about a problem that can't be touched, right? The sinner's heart. Talk about a problem that cannot be measured or weighed or quantified at the, the science lab at Georgia Tech. It's the sinner's heart. Cannot be touched. It's unseen. And yet it, it, it's what drives, in a sense, everything. And see, because the world, our world, only thinks in terms of what is seen and seeing is believing, the moral life, so-called moral life, gets reduced to a set of external behaviors. That's how the world defines a moral life. It's, a, all, it's all about what you do or what you don't do. There are two problems with that. One, no one is really sure who should have the right, the final right, authority to define what is moral behavior and what isn't. Right? On the one hand, the world likes to say things like, hey, live your truth. You do you. On, on the other hand, the world also likes to condemn very immediately and outright anything that is countercultural in that moment. And so, which is it? Does, do we get to live our truth, our own truth, or not? Right? And, and it ultimately becomes relativistic, and that's the first problem. Here's a second problem with this. It's a shallow, very shallow definition of what's, what, counts as a, what constitutes a moral life. Defining morality based only on what is external and behavioral is ultimately sh- shallow. And you know this to be true whether you're Christian or not. Um, it's really not about what you do on the outside, but why you do it. Right? The inner motive. Nobody would say, for example, that it is noble... Uh, for a billionaire to give a million dollars to children living in poverty just so that he can improve his public relations and bring more profit to his company. No one would say, if that was the motive, that therefore that's noble and generous and kind. That's very self-serving. On the outside, giving a million dollars to charity appears moral, but in this case, right, it clearly isn't, which proves what? Morality is not a matter of external behavior. It's a matter of the heart. Here's another example, more pertaining maybe to our daily lives because none of us here are billionaires. If you are, let's talk. <laughs> um, you can have two people working the same job, same nine to five, performing the same tasks where one person is doing it purely for selfish ambition, advancing one's one's own career, just stepping on others to get another step in that ladder, while the other is simply doing it for the purpose of honoring God by loving one's neighbor through their work and serving their family through provision. Even when, let's say, two people are working to provide for one's family, one could be working out of fear and insecurity about losing one's job. Another could be out of working out of a heart that ultimately trusts that God is ultimately the provider and therefore his, his future is secure. It's all within God's control. See, none of these dynamics, moral and spiritual dynamics, are visible on the outside. 
on the outside, it looks like they're all doing the same thing. Nothing is simply behavioral. Nothing is simply external. It's ultimately about what is not touched. It's ultimately about what is not seen, and that is the heart. And who sees the heart? God sees the heart. Proverbs 17.3 says this, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. He tests to see whether you're truly refined, whether you are pure, like pure gold, or are you only appearing to be gold, but underneath something that isn't as worthy, as valuable. Whether you are genuinely righteous before God, the Lord will test you and find out. You and I will be found out. And I don't know about you, that terrifies me. Just the thought of that terrifies me, as it should. And it's what we find happening in, in the first few verses of the chapter, uh, this passage, verses 18 to 21. And this is actually the retelling of the account in Exodus, um, when, when God's presence descends upon the physical mountain, Mount Sinai, the ground is shaking, there's a darkness and a gloom, there's a blazing fire, incredibly loud sounds of trumpet, and worst of all, there's a voice. It says it was a voice whose words made the hearers, those who hear beg that no further messages be spoken to them. A voice that made even a godly man like Moses tremble with fear. Why? Because that's the voice of God. The voice of the one who sees through every heart. The, this is the normal, normal initial reaction to drawing near to the living God. It's not, oh wow, the presence of God it's so cozy and comfy and feels like Christmas. I just want to snuggle up next to God. That is not a normal initial reaction when you come to encounter this true and living God. They begged Moses to make it stop. They begged him to make it stop because it was terrifying to hear God's all-knowing, all-seeing, holy, holy, holy voice. And the most natural reaction that any human being, any morally flawed human being can give to that, before, standing before that crucible, that furnace, is as if you are facing this fire that's about to consume you, as if you are being undone, as if you would be ruined. And it's not because the, the voice is harsh. It's because you're found out. Simply for who you are. No better, no worse. Simply for who you are and for who I am. This is our moral problem. Right? That we, even according to our own conscience, are found guilty, morally imperfect. Or as the Mosaic law would say, unclean. Unclean. And in this passage, we find the one solution that really deals with this problem in a way that the world can never, never resolve. The world has, 
has presented a solution and has this secular version of it and the religious version of it, but it's really the same thing. And it is this, it's save yourself by your own works. Right? That's the, the religious sort of anti-gospel. And, and you know this, and again, this is something that whether you're religious or not, Christian or not, can be keenly aware of, uh, as you, that we live in a culture that really um, stresses hyper-achievement. We live in a hyper-achievement culture where your performance defines everything about you. Um, this means, for example, in the, let's say, let's take for example the academic world, getting straight A's, for example, doesn't just prove that you're smart, it proves that you're somebody. Right? It, it's giving you an identity now. Um, you're somebody significant, you're somebody worthy of respect, you're somebody worth loving. And so when that becomes your identity marker, and let's say you begin to get a lesser grade, you get a B and you get a C, Lord forbid, you get an F, what happens to you then? You suddenly not just become someone who's struggling in school, you become unworthy, you become unlovable, you become, culturally speaking, unclean. And in the presence of those who are smarter than you, in the presence of those who evaluate you, what do you feel? Terror. You tremble at their voice. So, so, the, so the world's proposed solution to that, right, the anti-gospel is get straight A's and nothing less. And we will love you. If you obey this, we'll accept you. And when you believe this, you know, you know what happens, right? Everything that's core to your being, your identity, your security, your sense of self-worth, what happens to them? They become shakeable. Shakeable. Uh, Anthony Rostin is a, he's a psychiatrist at UPenn. He talks with a lot of Ivy League students on a regular basis. And he says that the culture of hyperachievement can be summed up this way. It isn't that one isn't doing well anymore, it's that I am no good. Instead of thinking, I feel, I feel like I am failing, I am a failure. That is the aftermath of having your identity shaken, shaken by not meeting up, not measuring up to the standard Here's a religious version of it. That's a secular version. Here's a religious version of it. It's when your fulfillment of your religious duties becomes your identity marker, your source of self-worth. I obeyed. I made sacrifices in the temple. I brought this animal that's without blemish. And therefore, God must love me. Maybe, perhaps, he even owes me I pray really loud. I pray really long prayers. I do a whole lot for the church. Therefore, God will. He must bless me. That's the religious version of this. And, and God, of course, has spoken on this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, saying these things that you're doing under the old covenant system with your hands, with your lips, and giving me these physical, tangible sacrifices, I don't need them. They're not the point, but they're pointing to the real thing that can actually remove your sins 
that can actually give you a new heart. You need to get, in, get under that new covenant and not be content in this old covenant because the old was only pointing to the new. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ, and that's the true gospel. The good news that's actually good. The good news of Jesus Christ, which is not a covenant of works that says, if you do as I say, you will be loved. Or that's what the secular anti-gospel says. That's what the religious anti-gospel says. They say you are loved only because if you, only you measure up, only if you obey. But there's a better covenant now in Jesus Christ. There's a newer covenant that says you are loved unconditionally by grace alone first. Therefore, go and obey me and follow me. Okay? So in a world that only tells you do this and you'll be loved, Jesus says you are loved, therefore do this. So, as it says in verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, which means in Jesus we now have a moral solution that no secular system, not even the religious system in the old covenant could resolve. We now have God himself as our mediator, our priest, our temple, even our sacrifice that can truly remove all of our guilt, all of our shame, and ground us in something unshakable, himself. Our identity, our sense of self-worth are found in Christ and in Christ alone. Do you know why it says in verse 24 that we have come to the sprinkled blood of uh, a word that better speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? What was the word that came from the blood of Abel? What was the cry? It's justice. Justice. This is, of course, going back to the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain murdered his brother Abel, and the blood of Abel cries out to God for justice. Why is the blood of Jesus speaking a better word on our behalf? Because the blood of Jesus cries mercy for us, and only justice for him. Mercy for us, justice for him. Jesus literally cried that on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? They don't, they're blind to their own sins. And I'm here to save them, the very people who are blind to their own sins. And that's why Jesus' blood speaks a better word on our behalf than the blood of Abel. It's mercy. And the author of Hebrews has been saying, this is why all you need is Jesus he is better than everything and anything and anyone. In Jesus, the Son of God, you have a high priest who is sinless. In Jesus, you have a representation before God that is eternal and not temporary. In Jesus, you have a sacrifice that can actually take away your sins once and for all, not to be repeated. In Jesus, in Jesus you have the same birthright to enter into not only the kingdom of God, but the family of God. Ultimately, it's a relationship that, that we enter into, a relationship where we are fully known and we are fully loved, fully known and fully loved. And it's all because of Jesus. And if you are united with him by faith, to him by faith, then the days of fixing your identity, grounding your identity in, in all these things that are, that are shakable, that can leave you without identity, without security, without hope, without peace, without self-worth, those days are gone when you enter into this drama of God's love for you. Uh, like the hymn says, this is my story, this is my song. Praising what? 
my own achievements, my, my own success. No, praising my Savior all the day long. That becomes your story and that becomes your song when your faith is in the unshakable Savior, Christ. It doesn't mean you won't perform anymore. It just means you won't ground your being in what you perform, how you perform. You won't seek your identity in your performance. And this leads us to the last point, uh, the unshakable power to live. I mean, that's almost like saying to perform. The unshakable power to live, to perform in the here and now. So remember the point, again, about contrast, and and in today's passage is the contrast between the shakable and the unshakable. Those terms have an object, especially in our passage today, and that is a city, the unshakable city versus the shakable city. Um, This passage is ultimately about a contrast between two cities, and some theologians have gone as far as to say the entire Bible can, in a way, be appropriately summed up as a tale of two cities. There's a city of man, and there's a city of God. City of man and city of God. And in a way, that's also been the theme of, of the book of Hebrews. There's, remember, he talks about how there's Joshua, the first Jesus figure in the Old Testament, who leads God's people to a physical city. Remember that? And then there's Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus, the true Christ figure in the New Testament, leading his people to an eternal country, a better country, the heavenly one. And, and if you also recall... The author has also been saying throughout, all, throughout the book, um, one of the uh, distinct things that distinguishes contrast between these two cities is also that one is built by human hands and the other is built, prepared by God himself. One is our performance and the other is God's. And it's the latter, the, the one prepared by God that you call home. So instead of, you know, like the, in, the, in the Old Testament when the people were... Uh, called to this mountain of terror, Mount Sinai, we're called to Mount Zion, a city of joy, uh, a home where, you, where it's actually comforting and, and cozy, and you can snuggle up next to your Heavenly Father. Now, where's the power in that for us to live in the here and now? Here it is, verse 28. Therefore, it's building up to this, therefore, let us be grateful. Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So your power and my power to live in the here and now, even as we suffer trials, even as we experience tribulations, and perhaps one day persecution, it's, I actually think it's likely that before the day I die, there will be religious persecution. And, and you and I might be going through that uh, sometime in our lifetime. Even so, even if what we're facing is imminent death, we have the power to live with gratitude. With gratitude and with hope. For what? For receiving the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. Now, imagine, first of all, just being contextual here, what kind of hope this would have provided the Jewish Christians who are about to witness the destruction of the temple just in a few years, where their entire system of self-validation and self-identity 
religiously, culturally, ethnically, politically, it just gets demolished. Can you imagine the, the kind of uh, discouragement, the wave of discouragement that could have come upon them, and then for someone to, to take the pulpit and preach on this text and to remind them, brother, sister, this is not the end. Just because something shakable was demolished doesn't mean you've lost what is unshakable and indestructible. Therefore, let us be grateful and let's worship. And I hope you realize this is the power that we simply cannot do without if we're, as long as we're living in the here and now. That when the system that the world relies upon for their identity, for their self-worth, falls apart, you still have a reason to be grateful. When the system of academic success gets demolished, career success gets demolished, you, when your relationship gets demolished, your physical health gets demolished, when these things get demolished, do you know that you have the power to still be grateful and worship? And with reverence and awe, as it says in that passage, which means what? You haven't lost what you treasure the most, what you revere the most, what places you in that place of awe the most, what you desire and cherish the most. You haven't lost that. And when this future-oriented life of worship and gratitude is your life, then, and only then, will you and I be able to live meaningfully, hopefully, and with continual drive and motivation in this world when everything, anything, will, will be demolished, will be shaken, will decay. Like the, like the hymn says, abide with me. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. What you, are, what you might be holding on to. I don't know if you are, but we, we all tend to have that one idol we're always holding on to in any given season. Do you know that that thing you're holding on to so tightly is not something that might be demolished, but will be demolished? Do you know that it's not something that is potentially shakable, but is now shakable? And so the wisdom there then is not to hold on to that more tightly, but to hold on to something unshakable and we find that out in worship and in worship we restore that sense of gratitude and not only that we're sent out to continue continue striving continue living continue loving and continue serving in a world where your your efforts may seem may seem fruitless and yet what you're doing is you're announcing the coming kingdom of god that will prove your fruitfulness you're, you're giving people in the here and now a preview. It's almost like an, a pilot episode of that drama that will unfold when the kingdom of God descends upon the earth. You're it. When, when not a lot of people may be paying attention, they will when you, when you kind of hit it big time. When the pilot episode hits big time, they will know that you are living the better drama and the better story. Of course, it won't be perfect until Jesus returns. But we have been given the power to give people a foretaste of that kingdom. Whenever we, we love, whenever we live with hope, whenever we live with gratitude, whenever we live by faith, whenever we live sacrificially, whenever we are generous and forgiving, we give people a foretaste of the kingdom of God. 
That's the only drive you have, only possible motivation that you can have to continue living in a world where everything continues to fall apart. You have no other power that's realistically powerful. That's as powerful as this. And here's a, here's a final note on this. You're not alone. We do this as a church. The word assembly in verse 23 means the church. It's the same word in the Greek. It's the same word in the Hebrew Bible. When you, when you translate assembly into the Greek, it's the same word. It means the church. The assembly of God's people, the congregation of God is the church. That's why some translation literally says the church in this verse instead of the assembly. It's the same word. Because there is now no, no distinction between Jewish Christians and Christians. We're all part of the assembly of God. And that's why if you recall, when Jesus uses the word church with his Jewish disciples, the disciples don't go, wait, Jesus, what is this church you're talking about? We know the assembly. We don't know anything about the church. Is that something for the Gentiles? No, they understand perfectly what Jesus means by the church because it means the assembly of God's people. We are that assembly. We are the church. We are the people of God. This word, therefore, is for you, for me. It's for NCA. It's for us in 2020, and it will be in 2021. It's a call for us, you and me, in the here and now, to live by faith in our unshakable high priest who's permanently solved our problem of sin, a problem of not measuring up, and our unshakable home, the heavenly Jerusalem where our inheritance is secure, nothing we lose here will not be regained in a hundredfold when we reach our home, and the unshakable power to live with gratitude, with reverence, reverence and all, with the continual drive to bear fruit, to give people a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And, and I hope we as a church will continue to heed this call to worship and to be reminded of this. Every, every day we're given, every Lord's Day we're given, with or without a pandemic, with or without a job, with or without a family, let's be in the house of God to respond to God's call to worship Him with gratitude and with reverence and all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been called by you into your heavenly home, into the heavenly Jerusalem. And would you have mercy on us if we have lived too much as though we are settling here, as if this is our permanent home, as if our only hope in life and in death is to make a home for us here. Help us to hear this encouragement to the church the church in the here and now, on this side of heaven, experiencing losses and trials and tribulations and witnessing all that's decaying around us, would you comfort and encourage us through this word, this gospel of the unshakable kingdom where the unshakable Savior still reigns and still is calling us home, still bringing us home and have brought us home. Fix our eyes upon him. And help us to live with gratitude every minute, every hour, every day of our lives, uh, looking forward, looking forward to the home that is not yet, looking forward to the day when your kingdom would be in sight. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.